Hey, hi, hello, y'all. My name is RB, and welcome to Take the Last Bite, a show where we take Midwest nice, roll it out on a flowered surface, shape it into a pie pan, and bake it until it's fruity and flaky. I think we all deserve a round of applause for making it to the other side of yet another very important election season. Whether you were actively involved in a candidate's campaign, drafted a voter guide, got yourself to a polling place, or rallied around all the credible alternatives to electoral politics, we made it through the rigmarole and across the board, it appears there were some significant wins and certainly some letdowns, all of which will flavor the work moving forward. I know I'm personally pretty hype about Alicia Kozlowski, an Ojibwe and Mexican-American non-binary human being elected to the Minnesota House, which means they'll be the first non-binary person to serve in the Minnesota State Legislature. I only wish I had the chance to vote for them, but I am not in their district, so they were not on my ballot. Of course, there are many headlines from elections across the country at all levels of government spotlighting instances of firsts, especially LGBTQ folks being elected into positions where they are the first fill-in-the-blank identity to serve in the role. And while it's not something to scoff at when someone who claims queerness or transness breaches the cishet normative parameters of electoral politics and gains a seat in major decision-making spaces, there's a complexity to the notion of firsts. Simply being some shade of LGBTQ doesn't mean that someone is enmeshed in the culture or accountable to others in the community. And when the norms within political spaces, trends toward upholding structures that inhibit queer and trans existence, it's more meaningful when an LGBTQ person in a place of power utilizes that power to pull us all up, not just lavish in the luxury of borrowed power. Being the first can be significant, but being the most empathetic, the most collaborative, the most attuned to the needs of disenfranchised communities, that's how we build collective power. On today's episode, I chat with someone who knows all about being the first, and also knows a whole lot about making deep connections between various movement efforts in order to make transformative change. Swimmer, educator, and advocate Skylar Baylor also known as Pink Manta Ray on social media, was the first trans athlete to compete for an NCAA Division I men's team. Skylar was one of these keynotes at this year's Midwest Bisexual, Lesbian, Gay, Transgender, Asexual College Conference, and I had the absolute pleasure of sharing the stage with him for a candid conversation about his emergence into athletics and his trans experiences, as well as analyzing the ways anti-trans attacks have turned toward trans participation in sports as the latest tactic against our communities. Take a deep breath and get ready to dive into this episode of Take the Last Bite. 
why can't we be in space with hundreds of other queer and trans folks and having these necessary conversations? When it comes to dynamics around privilege and oppression and around identity, well-intentioned isn't actually good enough. And how far is too far to drive for a drag show? I don't know, we're in Duluth right now. I would straight up go to Nebraska, probably. <laughs> if you are not vibing or something's not right, or also like there's an irreparable rupture, you have absolutely every right to walk away. Definitely gonna talk about Midwest Nice and if that's if that's um, as real as it wants to think it is. Midwest Nice is white aggression. That's what it is. Um, so I think a natural place to start is just, why don't you share a bit about who you are for folks who somehow don't know, um, a bit about your story and what you're up to. Yeah. Um, okay, so my name is Skylar. Um, it's really lovely to see you all. Um, I know Stephanie was talking about how it's like such a powerful, radical, revolutionary thing to have so many queer and trans people in the same place. And I, I was, you know, standing and listening and just surveying the room and I, I was feeling the same kind of power. So I, I hope you all can, can um, feel it if you don't already, uh, that it builds over, over your time here. Um, I am the first openly trans athlete on Beemon Munn's program. Um, I swam all four years at Harvard University. Um, and that sort of is what's given me a platform. Um, I think that, you know, I've, I've towed that label for a while now. Um, and I, I say that uh, in that way intentionally because I'm also more than just a trans athlete, of course. Um, and I think that, you know, I think that's, that's one of the problems is that we become as, as trans and queer people, one label, you know, and, and we get really reduced to that. I think trans athletes, especially. Um, so I'm also an educator, um, and that's a lot of what I do, as you, as you said. Um, I host support groups. Um, I do some stuff on Instagram, although I feel like I'm outdated because I haven't moved to the next thing yet. Recently, everybody's been telling me to do TikTok, and then the next thing after that, somebody told me recently YouTube's coming back. Is this true? Are you all on YouTube? Okay, you are just as clueless as me. All right, good to know. Well, somebody told me recently I had to get on YouTube Shorts, and I didn't even know there was a YouTube Shorts. I... So anywho, um, yeah, I, um, I've been out of college for three years now um, and uh, I have a puppy and um, a partner. And when I, was, when I was giving speeches in college, everybody always asked me, what do you want to do when you grow up? What do you wanna do when you leave college? And I said, I wanna have a cat, a partner and a place to live. And um, I have two of those, the dog will have to do. <laughs> Um, so that's me in a nutshell. I always um, joke about how I transitioned from not being a cat person to being a cat person mm -hmm. because now I, I have two of them and I love them dearly, even though I always swore I would never be a cat person. So I feel that, right? We Can, <laughs> can you be cats. like queer and not a cat person though? You know, you I know? guess I learned. <laughs> it's a DIY uh, identity forum for later cat lovers, cat people. Um, I'm only joking. If you don't like cats, it's okay. <laughs> oh my God. Let's not get on the, the Republican talking point about the litter boxes. Oh, I don't even know it. I don't think I want to. <laughs> it's a whole made up thing that apparently they think that high schools are putting litter boxes in the bathrooms for students that identify as cats. And it's just a fear mongering scare. I've seen so many wide open mouths. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> yes. This is how our opposition spends their time by thinking about things like oh this. Oh my God. So okay. anyway, we'll get to our opposition in a little bit. Um, yeah. All right. But so why don't, so going along the trajectory of your story, right? Like mm -hmm. in what ways would you say that like the emergence of your athleticism and coming into, you know, your experiences as an athlete, cause you've been doing this since you were very young. Um, 
where did that interplay and how does that intertwine with emerging into understandings of like your, your queer and trans identities? Mm. So sort of like understanding my identity and athletics and, and yeah. Uh, how did all of queerness? that emergence yeah. and just, yeah. Yes. Well, how long do you have? <laughs> well, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I learned how to swim before I was one. So I I've been swimming my whole life. Um, and uh, luckily I'm sitting today, but if I, I often trip on stage, so I always joke that I'm not much of a, of a land animal. Um, I truly have spent my life in the water. I've always felt more comfortable swimming. So um, it's interesting because, you know, gender identity, according to most of the major medical, psychological, psychiatric associations, gender identity solidifies around the age of three to five years old. So in some ways I've been swimming longer than I've been me. <laughs> um, so, I, you know, I think my identity as, um, swimmer came on pretty early. Um, and I, and I sort of, I realized my queerness with words, like I was able to say, Oh, I, I identify as queer around the age of 12, I think. Um, but that was only about sexuality. I didn't understand that gender identity was a thing that I could, you know, claim as my own, um, and as different from what I was, uh, you know, assigned. Um, but most of my childhood, I ended up, I presented myself in a very sort of like stereotypically masculine way. Um, I wore all my clothes were from the boys section. I played boys lacrosse, boys soccer, boys baseball. And that was just okay. in, in the ways that I, you know, was my parents, I, I was very lucky to have parents that supported me in that way. Um, not as lucky at school. Kids were not particularly nice to me because of that. But, um, but I, so I guess for the reason I'm saying this is because I didn't have the words to describe that, but I, I was pretty sure about who I was at that time. Um, and it wasn't until I actually developed an eating disorder and, and really struggled with my mental health uh, in high school that I was actually at all able to confront my, my identity. Um, I'd come out as gay somewhere in high school and I mean gay as in I, I, I knew I liked girls. I thought, okay, maybe that's like the thing, you know, um, it wasn't the thing, <laughs> uh, it turns out there's more. Um, and so when I, when I went to actually rehab, I went to a residential treatment center for my eating disorder. Um, and I spent five months there and it was that place that I was finally able to slow down, come up for air. Literally, I was not allowed to swim when I was there either. And I finally had the space to say, gosh, I'm actually not a girl. I'm, I'm a boy, I'm trans. Um, but I will say, and this brings in the athletic journey at that time, I was recruited to swim for Harvard women's swim team. Um, and so it posed a, a pretty big problem for me, right? Y'all know that gender is, most people say gender is pretty important in sports, um, especially in swimming um, where there's no like gender neutral uniform, right? It's that tiny little men's speedo or the one piece quote women's suit. Um, so I, I was, I was so afraid. Like when I figured out that I was trans, I was, there was no relief pretty much. It was like a very short amount of relief. Like, oh, that's it. Oh, fuck, that's it. Um, excuse my language, but Stephanie cursed. So I decided I'm going to too. <laughs> if y'all haven't heard cursing, I don't know what you're at. Um, so uh, yeah, I was so, I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do now. And I, I felt like I had to choose between being an athlete and being trans. Um, of course you can't choose being trans, but I meant being openly trans. Um, and I had no examples. I spent so much time Googling like transgender athlete, transgender swimmer, transgender person, trans and, and pretty much nothing came up, right? There was like, there was no resources. There was nobody who was talking about trans athletes at that time at all. Um, there was pretty much nobody who had competed either who was openly trans. Um, there were a couple people who had competed on the teams that they, that they were assigned. So nobody had, had done what I, what I had done at, uh, at that time. So I concluded I had to hide it. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to, figure this out, I guess. And I'll pretend to be a woman for the rest of my college career and then I'll transition. Um, but, uh, 
that didn't work out for me. I decided that I needed to, you know, be more of myself and, um, trying to make this story shorter. Sorry, y'all. Um, but, uh, I ended up deciding that it was best that I, I come out. I tell my coaches, I found support there, which was mind blowing. I didn't expect that, um, offered a spot on the men's team instead at Harvard. And, uh, I actually said, no, at the first time they said, Do you want to swim on the men's team? And I said, no, um, you want me to be around 40 college aged men's athlete? Absolutely not. Um, <laughs> and you got to remember, like, this is like, you know, baby trans Skylar. I've just come out as trans. I'm just figuring out how to present my masculinity, what that feels like to me, what that looks like to me. Um, I've got like four people in the whole world who are calling me he him pronouns. And the, and they're like, yeah, go and like, go to like the party with the guys, like the entire men's team. You know, I felt like a fetus. <laughs> um, I really did. Um, you know, they're all like, you know, six foot four, like bearded men. And I was like, I'm also man, I guess. <laughs> um, but I actually found myself feeling more comfortable than I expected. Um, and I found myself feeling able to be more of myself. Um, and so as you all know, I decided to, to be on the men's team and, and uh, the rest is history. We can go into more pieces of that at some point. <laughs> Um, the rest was truly history, as we know it from being the first openly trans, you know, athlete in the NCAA um, to compete. What did I just say? NCAA. I was right. Okay. Um, so, so something that you mentioned too, is that like when you were Google searching, mm. nothing, right? Mm -hmm. Like, was this the days of Tumblr still? Was that yes. still really prominent? Like yes, even, yeah, I'm assuming even then, like just not as much because there wasn't, there wasn't folks. Right. And so like, it sounds like that is that is a big piece of why you do things like this, right? You come yeah. to spaces like this to share that story so that no one else has to end up in that situation. Can you speak a bit more to that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, for a while, and I, and I, I say this, well, for a while, my, my goal in sharing my story was, was very simple. I wanted people to know that this was possible. Um, I wanted people to know that, that I was possible, not me as in Skylar Baylor, but me as an as a openly transgender athlete who was, you know, competing in his sport and happy and supported as well. I wanted to spread that message of, of you know, the possibility. Um, and I, I say this as past tense because I used to end every speech I gave with, and I'm here to prove to you that you can be who you are and do what you love. And that's just no longer true. Right, we have so many states, over half the states in the United States, that have attempted to ban trans kids from doing exactly what I've done. And the statement, you can be who you are and do what you love, is no longer a universal statement in the United States. Um, and that's devastating, right? That's why y'all are, are here, not specifically because of the athletic part, perhaps, but because we are experiencing an onslaught of attacks that are going, we, I mean, we are, they are trying to tug us, pull us, yank us backwards, right? Um, and so now the journey is about sharing the possibility, but, but more so sharing the fight to um, bring people along here and, and make it possible again for especially trans young people to, to do this. Um, I think that one of the other things that I really want to communicate to people is, is really my humanity. Um, and I think people miss that. I, you know, there's many times where I have, so you all are, are what I call a voluntary audience. You chose to be here. I'm expecting, maybe your friend dragged you here, but for the most part, you've chosen to be here. I go to a lot of places where people don't choose to be here, right? Where it is schools where they are all made to come because it's a school assembly. I go to places, these are the scary ones where it's the athletics department and the teams are forced to be there, right? And so those places are a little bit different. Um, and, and the reason I'm sharing you this is because every, every time I go to these places with conscripted audiences, right? People who are not voluntarily there, 
at the end of the presentation, I always have people coming up to me and a lot of times they're, they're guys and I'm gonna assume they're cis guys um, who say, gosh, before I came here, I didn't wanna come. They'll, they'll, they're really direct with me. <laughs> I'm always like, you know, before I, uh, I didn't wanna be here. I had a lot of other things to do. I'm like, okay, well, that, okay, sure. Um, and they'll be like, you know, and I really didn't like people like you. Okay, okay, well, all right. And then they'll be like, but you know what? I sat here and I listened to you. And it turns out, I kind of felt the same way at X, Y, and Z point in my life. I also have felt like I didn't fit in at one point. I also struggle with depression. Um, I also, my friend, you know, said that they felt the same way you did at one point. And gosh, it turns out you actually are just like me. And sometimes I have to keep myself from being like, well, duh. <laughs> um, yes, we are also both human. I'm glad you caught to that conclusion. But that's, that's really what's lacking, right? Like, it's funny, but it's also not because that's what's lacking. People are not are unable because of the amount of um, lies really that they've been told, people are unable to connect with another person who they perceive as other. And when I show up and I say, hi, I'm this person, this is who I am. That's really all I do, by the way. I just tell them my life story. I don't really force anything down them. I don't say they have to do anything. I just say, hey, this is, this is who I am. And, um, and when I do that, I think what actually happens, not only am I presenting them my humanity saying, hey, here, you know, look at this, witness this. What I actually am hoping to do is invite them into their own humanity, because that's what's actually missing is they are also when we when we oppress others, we are not being fully human ourselves, in my opinion. Um, so there's a lot there, but those are thoughts I have. I love I love every single piece of that. And I I think what what stuck out to me, too, is thinking about like other folks in athletics who either are not or are not currently claiming any shade of trans or queerness mm -hmm. is kind of the, the realization of kind of in the realm of sport and athletics, some of the rigidity, mm -hmm. some of the rigidity in um, what you're doing with your body, how hyper-gendered those spaces can be, some of the pressure and expectations and, and um, how that is maybe not focused on or fostered in those spaces, mm -hmm. um, especially college athletics, um, and how you kind of coming in probably to check a box, unfortunately, because high red, um, <laughs> looking at you, um, that folks can recognize that humanity and maybe start to kind of reevaluate kind of the culture of athletics mm. um, and what else might be worth addressing beyond one of the very clear things that needs addressed is how trans folks are being um, treated and or ill-considered in those athletic spaces. There's not really a question in there, but that's just kind of a, a thought too <laughs> yeah. of just thinking about like, I, I, I will name too that like this, there's additional conversations this weekend around some of the really complex and kind of cringy things that can take place that aren't maybe as public facing in athletics, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. especially in college sports um, um, programs. Um, we have a, a presenter who's kind of speaking to some of his um, unfortunate experiences, very similar to um, kind of the, the um, I can't think of his name, but the Michigan State scenario with the, with the person who was convicted for mm -hmm. doing really horrible things mm -hmm. to some of those youth athletes. So there's a comparable narrative coming up this weekend too, and just kind of the culture of things that are taking place. Um, and so you, you hit on um, something that I wanted to take us towards anyway, because again, the programming group was, really, group was really eager to focus on that onslaught of attacks. And I think it's really important to be realistic and embrace the fact that like, you should be able to do what you love and be who you are. Absolutely. And that there is a huge, huge frontier 
being ridden. I don't know. We're going to, we're going to choose that for today. Um, yes. Um, why do you think it is that in this particular moment, our opposition, as I like to call them, I don't like to give them too much power. We know who they are, um, are choosing athletics and sports because it used to be bathrooms. That used to be the big deal. Right. And not that that has gone away, but it seems like there's a very precise focus on sport and athletic. Why do you think that is? Yeah. Um, well, there's many different reasons, power and the, the desire for power is the primary reason, but we'll break it down. So why sports, right? We all, you all might've remembered HB2 in North Carolina. There was the bathroom bill. It actually started right a little bit before that, a couple of years before that in Houston, when they were trying to pass a, um, a bill that would allow, this is relevant, I promise a little bit of history, but they were trying to pass a bill in, in Houston that was going to protect gender identity, right? It's going to add gender identity and sexual orientation, gender expression to the list of co- protected classes. Um, and the uh, and it would have allowed, you know, people to use the bathroom of their choice. Um, and Republicans decided and figured out a little bit of a genius tactic, if you will, they're quite good at propaganda. <laughs> um, they decided that if they, if they fear mongered us about bathrooms, right, they told everybody that this meant that, you know, people were going to abuse people in bathrooms, that it would, you know, take hold. So they did that. And it wasn't about, it wasn't even about bathrooms. And then the bill didn't get passed. Um, fast forward two years, then we, they actually started doing bathroom bills directly. That was in 2016. We saw that for a bit. Now we're, now we're here with, with trans, with trans sports, right? Trans athletes in sports. So, all of them has the same through line. And, and, you know, the reason that this is really important and why I talk to people about it is you don't have to care about athletics, by the way, to care about this. You don't have to care about trans people to care about this because what's happening is they're, is they're using pretty much any group they can. And trans people are an easy target because of the way that people rally around what they think is feminism. So the, the, the Republicans, the alt-right, the opposition um, is using these arguments to manipulate people into essentially supporting them which is power, right? Um, and they're and they're manipulating feminism to do it. And this is this is the key, right? It's a, it's a manipulation of feminism. They are tricking uh, pretty much the the moderate, right? The people who are like, you know what? I, I like support trans people, but like trans people in sports, like what, right? That's the crew of people that they want because they can tell those people, hey, fight for women. It's women's rights. It's women's rights. That's why we need to exclude trans people, right? Women's rights. And it's all under this guise of feminism. But feminism doesn't exclude women, first of all. Um, And second of all, that feminism is hella white. And this is really important because if we are not looking at it from an intersectional lens, we're going to completely miss that women's sports have also been completely racist for a really long time. Um, and the same arguments that are being made about trans women were made about black women. And I say were, and that's not actually accurate. They are, right? Serena Williams is still being accused of being a man. Um, and that happened to Simone Biles. It happened to Sherry Carey Richardson. It happened to Caster Semenya. I could go on and on. And there's one through line for these women. They are all black, right? So the, the, the thing that everybody misses when they, are, when they decide that they are going to be a feminist and therefore support excluding trans women um, is that they are feeding right into the trap. And it is, it's a, it's a designed trap. The goal is to tell people, this is the right thing to do. This is feminist. And that is how we will control you. Um, I saw a great tweet that was, it was, there was a, there was somebody who had, te- who had tweeted something like, um, you know, it was about when, when Roe v. v. Wade was overturned and somebody tweeted something like, oh, well, the, it doesn't end here. And somebody retweeted that. And they said, oh, I'm using Twitter words, sorry. Somebody retweeted that and they were like, it doesn't it didn't start here either. And this is really key. They said it doesn't, it didn't start here with overturning Roe v. Wade either. You just didn't see attacks on trans people as legit, legitimate attacks on bodily autonomy. 
And that's what's happening. This is a, an attack on bodily autonomy and they're using trans people to, to like ease the country into it. They're using it to divide the country. The best way to be you know, empowered over people is to divide the people you wanna have power over, right? So it's not about sports. It's not about healthcare. It's not about the bathrooms. It's not about the abortions actually either. Um, it is not about any of the things that they are saying it's about because if you dissect any single one of them, there's no basis to their arguments. Um, so I can, we can get really into the weeds with like trans athletes and I can give you all the facts as to why it's fair for trans athletes to compete. We don't need to go into that. I think today, if you want to, you can go to pickmanary.com slash trans athlete. Um, but I, I think that the through line that I want to tell you all is that trans people and our existence is it threatens it, so that they see us as a threat. And here's the thing we are, because we are threatening cis heteropatriarchy and that's why they're freaking out. And so I actually, in this situation, <laughs> in this situation, I don't mind being that threat because I want to threaten the cis heteropatriarchy. I want that to fall. I don't want that to stay. Um, and, and the problem is that we have to actually understand that that's the system we're taking down because also, by the way, it's white cis heteropatriarchy, which is, you know, a lot of systems of oppression, but they're, they're overlapping. Right. Um, and I think people miss that. I really do. I, I think that, you know, the amount of people I've talked to that are like, you know, but I really want to protect women. I'm like, then why are you defining women in a really reductive 1920s way by only their reproductive capacity? Because I, last time I checked feminism was that women are more than their reproductive capacity, right? And in order to de designate somebody as not woman by way of not being cis, you have to reduce them to their reproductive capacity. Um, so we could go on, but that's my diatribe. I, I think that framing is so stunning. And I, I think too, right. I, I was, when I was in college, I feel like the bathroom conversation was really where the, yeah. the pin was and something that I'm, I'm curious about and have kind of tracked is that I think the, the pitfall in some ways and why we've seen the morphing of the bathroom conversation explicitly yeah. turn into this trans athletics conversation, um, is that they probably figured out really quickly how impossible and ridiculous it would be <laughs> to enforce the bathroom bills, yeah. right? Like, yeah. what are you gonna do? Station someone at every bathroom door? I'm sure they thought that they could do that because we live in a police state, but like ultimately, yeah. you know, there's, I think, unfortunately, yeah. some quicker reach to saying who can and cannot participate in yeah. sport and athletics. And unfortunately, um, not to say it's not transcending age, but what we're seeing is that it's specifically children going for children yeah. who like, should have nothing to do with this, right? Like yeah. we should not be doing this to our children, um, but that's where we're at, right? And I think too about what you said about kind of, kind of really being able to sway and convince kind of the moderate average person who's maybe not very politicized or maybe not immersed in caring about trans people. And I think about earlier this year where I feel like everyone in their hamster had an opinion about Leah Thomas. Mm. Like who people- should <laughs> You tell me. You tell me. You tell me. I can. Is that, is, that, is that the question? Le yes. Le no. <laughs> Leah Thomas um, competes, is also a swimmer. Um, was at, can someone help me? Which, University of Pennsylvania. University of Pennsylvania. Thank you. I was like one of the Pennsylvania schools. Um, and one is the first openly trans person to win a NCAA division one, division championship. one championship. Thank you. I, I am not a sports gay. Okay. I hope that's very clear. I'm interviewing the sports gay for a reason. Okay. <laughs> um, so, so people who've never cared or watched collegiate sports, especially collegiate swimming, right. All yep. had an opinion about Leah Thomas Everybody participating. Yep. In fact, there were people who were pinning the wrong swimmer. Oh yeah. We had some, we had some fun <laughs> pictures of Katie Ledecky. 
Oh, like, she's a man. She? she can't be in here. Also, I love it when they use the correct pronouns and then also say that she's a man. But anyways, it, yeah, there's there's many tweets of Katie Ledecky, um, who also, you know, she we can go on and on about that too. But K- Katie is an incredible swimmer and is Leah was nine seconds behind Katie's American record. Mm. So this whole dominating sports by nine seconds, yeah, is a whole language. pool length, mm-hmm. a whole pool length. Okay, yeah. So, anyways. <laughs> We're getting a little riled up yeah. here. What's, this what's is, the, this, what's this the is question? The vibe. <laughs> um, I, I think I'm just naming like what you'd said about like the general public really can latch onto some of this language that's being weaponized to yeah. say who should and shouldn't be participating. Because most of these folks, folks on social media, like talking about it that have no stake in this game, like literally yeah. um, suddenly having a proclamation about who should and should not be able to participate in sports. Um, and I think that's just one of the examples yeah. of kind of how you're naming that folks can be easily swayed and that it's a designed tactic yeah. Yeah. Um, because no one would have really been like reaching for that particular conversation with Leah Thomas unless it, the way it reached kind of sensationalized, very um, public facing. Um, I don't think there's a question in there either, but I think that's just a key example just from this year. Yeah. Um, Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, one of the things I think is really interesting, um, I, I like to point out the irony. So we've got all these people um, in the Republican Party specifically um, who are, you know, s- fear-mongering about how trans people are going to, you know, um, abuse people in bathrooms, how we're going to destroy sports, how we're going to take over sports, we're going to, I don't know, make all the children, like molest all the children, groom all the children, right? These are all the arguments, okay? Um, and the people who have the highest rates of all of those things are the Republican Party. Right. If you use a quick little Google search, Republican Party, um, sexual assault. All right. They have more cases. There's plenty of reports about that. I've done plenty of research on it. And we've actually got, you know, a Republican, whatever his name, something gets or whatever. Um, He uh, he's in he's like literally under investigation for for sex trafficking a minor. Okay, so we have to understand also that they are saying over here, like from the front door, they're saying, oh, trans people are going to ruin all these things. They're going to you know, take our children. They're going to, um, you know, sexually assault people in bathrooms. And then they're turning around doing each and every one of those things. All right. And we, when, we, when we miss that, we're, we're again missing the manipulation. And that's where that, that moderate gets swayed because they're only listening to what they're saying and they're not looking at what they're doing. Um, and I've had so many interesting conversations with people who who were very supportive of me participating in sports and then were having trouble with Leah because they'd read all of the crap. And I talked to them and I and I would I literally told them, you got played. Like you totally got played here because you ate that up. And if you actually know the facts, Leah's not threatening anything. Um, so yes, I, I mean, I think that um one of the things that's really difficult about the work that I do right now, um, that's different from what it was. So five years ago, actually seven years ago, I started doing this work. And at that point, most people couldn't define the word transgender. They had no ability to define that word. Um, They hadn't met a trans person. They didn't know what trans people were. They were like just blank slates, which actually wasn't that bad, right? Because I got to say, hey, this is what trans people are like. This is what a trans person is. Here are all the facts about how it's fine for us to compete in sports and so on. Um, People were really supportive for a lot of, you know, a lot of the time. And then over the past like three years, we've seen this onslaught of anti-trans bills. And so now when I go and speak, people are like destroyed with all of this bullshit. And I have to start with unpacking all that first before I can get them to even step forwards. Um, And it's hard. It's really hard. And it's possible though. And that's what I want to, I don't want to just be a a Debbie Downer here. I want you all to know that it is actually possible for people to walk through this because um, I know you were using the term opposition. And I I guess I would offer a little challenge. Those people are actually afraid. 
And there, there is, there is a word um, that there's like that quote where it's like, Oh, it's not, you're not actually homophobic. You're not, you're not afraid. You're just an asshole. Yes. I think that people are just assholes, but I do think they're also afraid. And I mean this, I think it's really important. Um, they are terrified that they're losing power and they are scrambling for it. And the reason they're scrambling for it is like never before we know ourselves. Like never before you all are collecting yourselves in spaces. We are, we are creating community, whether that be in person, online, on Zoom, on text. We have resources now like the Trevor Project, like Trans Lifeline, like so many LGBTQ plus organizations that never existed 30, 40 years ago, right? We are organizing like we have never done before because we are able to know ourselves, right? Like never before. And that's terrifying to those people, which is awesome. But the, the, the less awesome part is that then when they get scared, they do this, right? And they, and they grapple for that power. But I think that one of the things I, I don't want us to miss as queer and trans people is that despite the fact that it feels like they're pushing us backwards, they're only doing that because we're moving forwards. And we have to know that. We, have, we can't let go of that. We can't lose that hope because, I, you know, despite the fact that I've said a lot of like, you know, sad things or I, you can see me get, you know, angry or passionate about these things. It's because I do have hope that we are going to, we're going to move forward. I have immense hope. I have endless hope that we're going to do that. Um, it's not even, I don't even think hope at this point. It's, it's knowledge. I know we're going to move forwards. Um, and that's because we stand on the shoulders of absolute giants, amazing people, a lot of black trans femmes, a lot of, you know, black femmes, honestly, in the queer community who have, who have charted this path and, and we've got to keep, keep it going. Challenge accepted because I, I agree <laughs> wholeheartedly that, you know, in many ways, I think trans folks especially have been underestimated because of the gaps in documentation of our history and contributions. And, you know, there is some in house reason for that too, right? Like, cis, white, gays, and lesbians not really giving room to um, trans folks in really any decade, but I was going to say the 90s, I, I refer to a lot because of the origins of our of our conference space, for example, is that like trans folks were not, yeah. you know, not given that space. And we still see the whitewashing and the ciswashing of media that really doesn't depict the fact that like behind basically every shift and move and movement, right, it's been trans folks, especially trans, you know, women and femmes of color, which uh, I will absolutely plug the lunch and learn tomorrow to hear more of that context and history from some amazing trans women of color who are just doing incredible, oh, yeah. tr incredible work um, that just, and that's the point, like they're always doing the work, they're always there, but whether or not we focus on that um, is a whole different story, which is why one of our tracks is designing a, a future through media because they're there too, but the media needs to do a better job plugging all the things. That's what I do. Um, director of programs. Here I am. Um, I do want to make, um, I'm looking at the time. I want to make some room for questions from the audience and then we'll pull back to do some final thoughts and wrap up Sounds here. Good. Once we opened up the room for questions, a huge line formed behind a stationed microphone. While we ended up having to cut the Q&A portion off before everyone got to ask their questions, Skylar was incredibly generous with his time and connected with attendees after the session wrapped up. In the interest of privacy and confidentiality, we will be including some of the questions asked during the session, but they have been re-recorded and paraphrased. The first question was, quote, I've been following your story for a long time, and I've always seen on TV what I can assume is a reservation to say things that would look bad on air. I wonder, if it weren't for presentability politics, what are the things you wish you could say on TV more? End quote. 
You know, I, it's interesting your reflection. I, 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 I don't want to invalidate anything you've said. I don't know that I restrain myself in in the contents of what I say, but rather in um, how I might say what I say, because I, I don't think I've ever gone to TV and thought, oh, I can't say that. Um, because if they are putting me on TV, I'm going to say whatever the hell I want to say. <laughs> um, and I, and I will say the things that they don't want to hear. And I have, um, you know, nobody wants to hear that we're taking down this is heteropatriarchy. They don't even know what that word means. <laughs> um, and nobody ever wants to hear the words white supremacy on TV either. So I think in many ways, I, I don't, I don't think I don't, I like restrain the, the contents, but I think that there are times when, um, I want to just say you're wrong. And, and that, that's not, you know, enough, if you will, if an answer. So what you might see is sort of careful consideration of how best to use my words. Um, but the, the, what I want to pull out one of the things you said, you said, I can't remember if you use the exact word, but the palatability is a word that I'm thinking of, right? Um, in order for somebody to listen to me in some, in, in some context, they must perceive me as palatable. What does that mean? I need to be presentable to use the presentability. Yes. Um, kind of some idea, right? I need to feel presentable to them. They, I, I need to sometimes coddle them and to make sure they don't feel like attacked. Um, I might need to use different language that they understand. Right. Um, and to me, this um, practice, if you will, First of all, it's white supremacist, cis, you know, cis-normative, heteronormative, ableist, and so on. Um, and I and I want to recognize that. At the same time, for me, what happens is it's it's a tension between validity um, and productivity. And I'll explain. It is valid for me to yell at somebody and say, "How dare you um, say something transphobic, racist, sexist, and so on?" Right? It's totally valid for me to feel that way. It's not always productive. And in order for me to be successful in the work that I do, and in order for me to actually change somebody's mind, I can't yell at them. It doesn't work, <laughs> uh, unfortunately. <laughs> it would yeah. be great if I could just let it out, right? Um, but it doesn't work. And um, I tone police myself, right? That's a term that that um, Black activists have coined and, and we're using here to, to, to use as well in terms of people saying you have to be this way in order to be received, right? Um, I can tell you it works and that's why I do it. But the validity part of that, right? I said validity versus productivity. The validity part of that is really important. And what I always tell people when I do speeches and I, and I have people always come to me, they're like, oh, you know, you're so, you're so calm and you're so, you're so, you explain these so nicely to us. I just really appreciate it because other people, you know, they get all mad and nasty. And I say to them immediately, well, there's a reason they're mad and nasty, <laughs> right? You probably said something that pissed them off. I'll say this directly to the whoever tells me this. And I'll say, you need to understand that when people get mad, there's a reason that they're mad. And I have the privilege to not get mad. I have the privilege of therapy, supportive family, um, financial freedom. And so I could name many things that, are, that allow me to actually have an ability to calm myself in these moments and say things in a way that's palatable to somebody else. Therefore, it is productive, but the anger is also valid. So we could talk about this forever, but I, I think that it's a tension that I walk very carefully because I want to be productive in what I do. Um, but sometimes I really have to also remind them that productivity excludes emotions sometimes, and that's also not good. So it's an unfinished statement because it's an un unfinished practice. Our next attendee question was, quote, a lot of the time when we engage in activism or we present ourselves as out and open to people, it can be very exhausting. The question I want to ask, what was the something that made you happy about deciding I'm going to be out, I'm going to be competing openly trans, and I'm going to be an activist? Was there any joy in it? For me personally, doing the work I do, there are some days where I'm like, is there joy in this for me at the end of the day? 
end quote? Um, it's a good question. I appreciate you making space for it. Um, I think the short answer is that I did not come out and and um, share my transits with the world because that was the number one goal. I was a I'm I'm a swimmer. I'm I'm freaking naked in the pool. You know what I mean? Like people were gonna know. Um, and I rather like I decided that a I wanted people to know because of what I said earlier. I wanted people to know this is possible. But I also knew that it was better that I took control of the story. And lastly, I wanted to swim. I, I did what I did. And I, I said this throughout my entire college career. I did not, I religiously rejected the word advocate or activist when I was in college, because I said, you're only calling me that because I'm transgender and a swimmer, right? You're not calling me that because I'm doing anything. You're calling me that because it is radical to be both. That's it. My existence is radical. Mm-hmm. Um, and I now accept the label of activist and advocate. But at the time it, I was, I was trying to swim. I wanted to swim and I wanted to stay alive. And those things ended up becoming, you know, together in terms of being openly trans because that was the best thing for me. Um, so there was tons of joy in swimming. Um, and I think that that was actually what, what kept me through a lot of college was because I love swimming and I wanted so badly to just swim as myself. Um, so there was a lot of joy there. I think that um, it's also very heavy work. And I want to encourage you and anybody else who does this work um, to make space for that, to grieve when you need to, to be sad when you need to, to feel joyless when you need to, because in order to, to keep that momentum, you have to make space for the, for the crappy stuff, right? Um, people always ask like, how are you so positive, Skylar? How do you stay optimistic? And my answer is I don't. I actually don't stay optimistic all the time. Generally speaking, I do. But when I'm not, I say, gosh, this makes sense. I'm not optimistic. This fucking sucks. This is hard. So let me spend some time doing whatever I need to do to make myself feel better. If that's crying, if that's watching Avatar, if that's, um, I don't know, hanging out with my puppy who's not a cat, if it, whatever it may be, right? It's important to make space for that joy too. The next attendee's question was, quote, I was wondering, based on how you came out and how your fellow athletes reacted to it, is there a good balance when it comes to having allyship with perhaps cis-identifying individuals and people in the queer space? As queer people, it's powerful that we have this union, but is there kind of a balance of sort of like allyship that we need to kind of push ourselves up into a space? Or do you think we can become powerful enough on our own to be sustainable and you're able to make change? End quote. It's a great question. I think check all of the above is probably my answer, but you probably don't want just that. Um, let's see. Um, so my time, my time on the men's team um, was, was complicated, I'll say. You know, I speak very generally highly of my teammates because generally they were accepting of me and my coach was, I can't say really anything negative about how my coach treated me. Um, and that's a huge privilege. Um, but I also was misgendered for most of the first year by most of my teammates um, and several of them specifically, you know, there were specific ones who continued doing it. Um, I was kicked out of the rooming group by one of the sort of I want to call him like the lead bully, if you will, in my class. Um, And I had a difficult time with some of the guys there, right? Um, I think, again, generally speaking, it was a positive experience. And that's why I share that, especially I'm also being more open here in this space intentionally. I I share more of the positives when I'm in cis and straight dominated spaces because it actually acts as a bit of peer pressure. (laughs) Oh, well, if the Harvard guys can be supportive of Skylar, like we should get our act together. Yeah, you should, (laughs) right? So that's how I share it. Then I don't ever lie or anything. I just share more of the positive. I also share some of the negative because I think it's important, but you know, I guess that's what I'm just trying to share with you, the the reason for the narrative. Um, 
I think that um, there is value in having allies. Um, I think that when we are in echo chambers, it can be harmful to how we move forwards. But I also think that I know many queer and trans people who refuse to interact with anybody who's not queer or trans. Um, and I think that's valid too. So I think it's, it's really what works for you. And I think that the people who need to be just around community can do great work within community and the people who are capable and want to interact outside of community can do that, right? I think there's, there's, like, there's need and a necessity for both. Um, the only thing that I'll say is that in order for all of us to move forwards as a society, you mentioned that word society, I do think we have to have people who will be ambassadors of some kind, um, who, who will bring people on board, right? Um, and I think that when we divide, you know, there's value to a lot of value to affinity groups, right? And, and people being in spaces where the identity is common, but there's also like, how do I say this best? At the end of the day, we are also all just humans and we are using a 1% of a 1% part of who we are in order to distinguish and, and put these boxes around us. And what I want is for people to understand that there's actually so much more expression and space and freedom in our identities that even cis and, and, and het people need to get, you know, need to achieve. Achieves the wrong word, need to explore. The next attendee asked, quote, I was wondering if you have noticed much difference between transitioning male to female and female to male and what the difference has been outlash and backlash wise for the two, end quote. Yeah, absolutely. So they're markedly different. Um, transitioning, and I'll just, I, I'll use different language uh, or offer different language. Um, I would say people assigned male at birth and people assigned female at birth. A lot of trans people in my experience, and if you also identify this, so I don't want to tell you how to use words for yourself, but I just like to share this. I've, I've seen a big shift in the community away from saying male to female or female to male because it, it denotes that, for example, for me, if I were to say I'm you know, FTM or female to male, that would imply that at one point I was female sure, sure. and doesn't feel accurate to me. So I just like to, to state that because I never learned that at the beginning of my transition. I use that language too. And then I was like, this doesn't feel right. I wasn't female at one point. And then I said, oh, there's other language. I can use different words. Um, okay, yes, there's a marked difference, right? People um, actually don't really care a whole lot about me. <laughs> um, I made a bit of a splash when I when I started, but that was mostly because of, I think, Harvard, honest. Okay, pun. Okay, all right, all right, all right, all right. <laughs> um, but I, you know, I think part of it, honestly, was the fact that I went to Harvard and people were like, talk about what happens there. It's very elitist, right? Um, I think another part of it is, well, it, it was the first, like the, the, the fact that it hadn't happened was interesting to people. And then swimming made it interesting as well, right? Oh, he's basically naked. Um, so I think that's one factor as to why I made a story, but most people were like, oh yeah, well, okay. You know, people weren't that upset. Some people were, um, and people would accuse me of like cheating by using testosterone or what have you, which my levels are checked three times a season. Whereas most of the cis guys on my team never got checked ever. Right. Um, but mostly they don't care. Okay. Um, the biggest argument against me was, wow, that's so unfair to me because I think that I am so disadvantaged as somebody who's assigned female at birth that I couldn't possibly compete against other men. Right. Um, that was the most common thing. And it was like, oh, like he's just going to get destroyed. He's just like, he can't keep up, whatever, whatever. Right. Which is actually a very um, misogynistic belief because it's based on the belief that anybody assigned female at birth is automatically going to be worse at sports than anybody assigned male at birth, which is made up and propaganda, right? Um, and also used to hurt women about all genders, or all, sorry, all, all gender histories. Um, 
Okay, so that's one side. The other side is, is you know, trans women in sport. I don't think I need to explain to you all how much backlash trans women in sports have gotten. Um, and I, you know, I saw that coming from forever ago because when I started this work, the, one of the first questions I got was, well, what about the other way? Like, I'm fine about you, Skylar, but like, like what about the other one? And I was, I, so, you know, I've been preparing for Leah Thomas for years. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, that's the answer to the question. It's way worse for trans women, unfortunately. And the reason is misogyny, the patriarchy and racism. It's a, just another, swimming's a great sport for a lot of reasons, I'm biased, but um, <laughs> it's a great sport for, in this, in this case, one reason. It's very easy to know who wins and who doesn't. It is a numerical sport, right? You're either faster or you're not. <laughs> you don't get to be like, well, that was like a better shape stroke and therefore it's faster. No, you're either faster or you're not, right? Um, and so when people tell me that I couldn't, you know, beat other men, I say, well, actually you can just look at the results. I beat, you know, 85 and 87% in my best events of all the men in the NCAA. And so there's just numbers there. People can like, people like me can absolutely beat other men. Um, and then we look at, at trans women and people say, oh, they're just going to be all women. And you look at the fact that there is zero international world or Olympic records set by trans women. Not like, oh, there's just a few, zero. There are no international records that have been set um, that are Olympic uh, or world championships by, by trans women, right? Even Leah Thomas, everybody's like, oh, she's shattering records all over the place. She has broken no national records. She has broken no NCAA records. She has broken no Olympic records. She hasn't been to the Olympics, by the way. So can't break that record. Um, and uh, the records that she did break were at a tiny little invitational meet in the middle of nowhere in, in like, I think it was New York State, um, which, those don't matter. Yeah. Um, so anyways, yes. That's the end of the question. <laughs> Another attendee asked, quote, we've kind of had some heavy topics, but I was wondering this. What are some of your favorite connections you've made through your opportunities that you've gotten through your fame on Instagram and all of this? What are some of the favorite connections you've made? End quote. Well, actually, the first thing that came, this, I, I appreciate the question. I, I think I, I, the first thing that came to mind was all of the trans people that I met actually before I became anybody that anybody knew. Um, I started my Instagram um, in um, the summer of 2014 when I was still in treatment in that mental health center. Um, and I, and I like acquired a little group of trans masculine folks that I don't know really how it happened, but I, I made a bunch of friends and those are still some of my absolute best friends today. Actually, just yesterday I was in Denver because I had a different speech and I hung out with one of the, the, the guys that I met then. We went to the pool, went swimming, and that was awesome. Um, and pretty much the only people I talk to online, actually, that's not even online, just the only people I really hang out with these days that are my friends are trans people. Um, and a lot of them I met through my work. Um, so I, I can't pick one. <laughs> um, but I, um, I'll say one person that I, I connected with somebody. Some of you might know. Is anybody wearing a Meg Emiko sweatshirt, a Protect Trans Kids sweater? Somebody's gotta be, no? All right, well, you should go to, you should go to megemicoart.com and you should buy one of the, their sweaters. They're a, a non-binary Korean American um, transgender artist and they have the most, like my favorite, um, like merch for protecting trans people and they donate a ton of their work, work to, or the, the proceeds to like amazing causes. Um, so yeah, they're one, and they're one of my best friends and I met them through work too. The next attendee lost their question for a second and then asked, Quote, what might be the easiest way to calm yourself down from seeking out labels, seeking out identity as a means of kind of just figuring, skipping ahead and figuring out who you are, rather than just coming to terms with who you are as yourself, end quote. I think you like said the answer as you're asking a question. Um, you know, when I, one of the things that I've 
um, sort of recently delved into is, is history of like gender in the world. And I, you know, many of you might already know this, but there's a lot more gender diversity in a lot of other societies in the world before colonization, specifically Western conquest and colonization. And a lot of the languages had different words um, and a lot of different labels for different genders and different sexualities. And um, one of the most powerful sentences I read was, you know, and it, it said the name of several different indigenous words for, for like essentially for trans people. And it said, but these people weren't considered trans or non-binary, they were just another gender. That was just what they were. There was no like separate putting them aside. It was just part of society. Um, and the reason I'm answering your question this way is the more I understand that gender has been constructed the way that we see it today as a means of oppression, right? As a means of power, as a means of dividing societies so that you know the European white settlers could rule over those people, the more I understand that there is no, there's no need to get anywhere with an identity, right? To label something, even English itself is the language of the oppressor. And that doesn't mean we can't take the language back ourselves, but it means the language historically does not have the words for us to describe ourselves. And so if the labels don't feel right, well, that's because they aren't, right? There's a, a creator, maybe some of you follow, follow them. Their name is Ty Duran, mx.duran on Instagram. And they said, they, they told me this recently, they're like, I, I am not non-binary. Non-binary is a word I use to describe myself. And I thought that was such a powerful way to look at it. These labels are just ways that we try to approximate how we feel, who we are, but they will always be incomprehensive. They will always not be enough. Um, and I think the, the more we can understand that, the, the more exploration there is, because it's just a word that you're using to try to describe yourself. And if we can see that as not absolute, as not an end goal, as just part of the journey, I think that makes a lot more space for us being, like you were just saying, just being as opposed to trying to arrive at, at an identity. The next attendee's question was, quote, we have a local trans high school athlete that has faced a lot of oppression and a lot of pushback. I'm wondering what would you have wanted and what can we do best to help support them through their journey? And as a local LGBTQ plus club that's in the area, what would you have wanted to see as a high school going through this in sports? End quote. You know, I think that, so community is life-saving. The shortest answer is that community is life-saving. So making sure that that person has community, whether that be contact with other trans athletes, contact with other queer and trans people, um, people who aren't queer and trans, but support them, right? I think that as much as they can have contact with that, the, you know, the better. I think that it's really hard specifically for trans athletes because we're both, we, we, it's almost like we're, we're straddling two worlds, right? Athletics is very queer exclusive, right? And trans exclusive. And queer people are kind of anti-sports in a lot of ways. Like I've experienced a lot of people that don't like, I, I really have had queer people be like, well, I don't get you you're a sports person and they don't want me around. And, and it's, I don't know how to explain it other than that. And I felt sort of like not trans enough, not queer enough, not all of these things enough because I'm an athlete. Um, and I've been told that like people use those words directly. They'll be like, well, I don't, you're like a sports person. Like you're basically part of the enemy. So I don't want to associate with you because you associate with cis men, you associate with all these people I don't want to associate with. Um, and we have to stop that. I, I, I believe that we, we have to stop that because trans people and queer people can be athletes too. Um, and it, it has to, I think it has to start partially from the queer side of things because um, we can't, we can't be pointing at sports saying be queer inclusive when we're pointing at queer people saying don't go to sports, right? Um, and I, I don't know if that is as pervasive as it, as it seems to me, but it feels very pervasive where there is just, there's just two circles that just don't overlap and, and neither circle wants to. 
right? Um, and that's really hard for trans young people. It's really hard for those young trans athletes because they don't know where to find community. They can't go to their, their athletic teams and feel like they belong there, but they can't go to queer places either because they're not seeing other athletes. So I think it's about making sure that they do find that space because there are those spaces. There are, you know, there are sports gays. <laughs> there are sports trans, trans, you know what I mean? Um, so they have to connect with those things, right? Um, role models are important as well because that shows possibility. So making them aware of other people like them, um, you could I plug for my stuff because I well, because I know my stuff. You can have them read OB is Man Enough. It's my book about a trans athlete who's a kid, who's a middle school student. Um, but there are other, other resources as well. So um, I, I think it's really about making sure that they don't feel alone. Um, and the last thing is advocate, right? You got to advocate for them. You got to get in, in between them and the people who are telling them they don't belong and say you're wrong and, and fight for them because they'll feel that, right? Um, and in the process, I think don't let them read the comments. Don't let them read the articles. I don't think they need that. And whenever I talk to trans young people, I tell them that stay off of the comment sections. You're not going to change somebody's mind by having a fight in the comment section. And our final attendee question before Skylar's closing remarks was, quote, Early in your conversation, you mentioned how, with the discord between trans bathrooms and gender-neutral bathrooms, how feminism was weaponized against trans LGBTQ agendas. Do you feel like the LGBTQ queer agenda could be weaponized against other social movements? End quote. Mm. Do I feel like the queer agenda can be weaponized against other social movements? I think that people can weaponize anything if they want to, and white people especially. They're really good at that. Um, so, so yes, I think it can be. Um, but I think that when it is, it's, it's, it's perverting it. If it, if, if somebody is using, um, the call for liberation, the call for inclusion, the call for, um, feminism uh, against people, then they're not actually doing any one of those things, right? Because queer liberation is black liberation is women liberation is, is all of these things together. And I think if we ignore that, or if, or we're, if we're somehow using it to fight against that, then it's, then it's not, it's not truth. Right. Um, so can people try? Absolutely. They do all the time. Um, and that's why I think that there is a lot of, and you hit on this earlier, there is a lot of, um, especially white cis gays who are segmenting the community and using a lot of rhetoric against people. Um, I've seen a lot of people do that. And a lot of people from, you know, an older generation as well, mostly also white and cis. Um, and I think that that's really sad. Um, and I think it comes from a place of pain and it, it says, I experienced this pain, you don't have it the same way I do, or I experienced this pain and you know, you're fucking it up for me. Right. And I've heard people say that they'll be like, Skylar, you can't say, you can't say that because it's just going to make them not like us. I am not existing to make cishet white people like me. That is not my goal. And I think that. I think that, that that goes to the you know the palatability politics we were talking about earlier. There's a balance, right? And I think that when people get stuck there, um, and I think the closer you are to privilege, the more likely it is for you to get stuck there because only one thing is off, right? Only one thing's not giving you privilege. So you're more likely to be like, well, I want to just, my goal is to fit in. And somebody told me this recently. Um, I can't remember who said this, but they were, they were telling me like, um, I've met some straight people who are more queer at heart than, sorry, I've met some, some straight people who are more queer at heart than I've met some cis gay people. Um, and I, that really stuck with me, uh, not because I think that anybody who's straight and cis should appropriate the word queer, but the concept was queer as in fuck the system, right? And I think that there are some cis gay people, again, especially white ones, who want to be part of the system. They want to conform. That's their goal. And I'm not about that. And I don't think any of us really should be. I can't tell you what to do. But I think the goal is to disrupt the system, to dismantle the system, to get rid of the system, not to, to conform to it.
Skylar, this has been absolutely phenomenal. And I, I feel like we could spend hours having this conversation, um, but we, we have you got stuff to do. Things. There's so many things, um, but the, it's all connected. Right. And I, I totally. think something that I've appreciated so much is that like, you've made all these very significant connections between things that even if you're not a sports gay, right? Like why, <laughs> why does this matter in the grand scheme of, of other movement work and the other things that we're doing? And so um, I, I feel like just to like, carry us out and wrap us up what is what's kind of the the lingering takeaway and final kind of final motivating um mm. message that you want to close out for folks tonight simple question yeah simple it's an easy one um i think that i think that it's easy in the world that we live in right now to um be discouraged, to feel alone, um, to feel like your identity is, is less than in some kind of way. Um, and I think that one of the things I, I've learned is that we can both, we can take power from each other, right? We can, we can find empowerment together, um, but we also can really find it in ourselves. And I, I, I want you all to remember that no bill, no Republican, no stupid person, no propaganda, none of that can take away that you know yourselves. And that's a very simple statement, but it's actually, to me, one of the most powerful things is, is I know that I am transgender and I, I, I cannot ever go back to not knowing that. There's not a place, there's no backwards. It's impossible, right? For me to go backwards and stop knowing who I am. And that is absolutely radical. And that is the thing that terrifies the people who are against us because they can't actually get us to stop. They can ban us from the bathrooms. They can ban us from the sports. They can ban our healthcare. They can ban us from any public space, but they cannot take away the fact that we know ourselves and they can't take that from you. And I, I, think, I think that you, like I, I desperately don't want you to forget that because the most insidious, most painful and most harmful thing you can do is use their words against yourself. That's called internalized transphobia, internalized queerphobia, internalized homophobia. When we use their words, we pick up them and we make them weapons against our own beings. We are doing what they are doing to us. And it is, it is hard to fight against that, but we have to. And we do that by community. We do that by any mental health resources that we have access to. And we do that by affirming ourselves. Um, when I was in college, uh, there was a day when I got kicked out of the rooming group from my teammates because I'm trans. And it was a really horrible day. I was very upset. Um, I went home, I just started crying and I, I didn't know what to do. I was like, how can I show up at practice the next day with knowing that none of my classmates want me to, to be in this space with them, right? Um, that they didn't think I was a real man, that they didn't, you know, all, I don't need to repeat what they said, right? Um, and I went home and I stuck a big piece of paper on the wall. I don't know where I got it, but I did. Um, stuck a big piece of paper on the wall and I said, I wrote on like, this is me, imagine me like sobbing in my dorm room and I got big pieces of paper on the wall and I wrote, their words do not define me, their words do not define me. And I wrote it until I stopped crying. It might sound like I you know, was a little unhinged, I was. Um, <laughs> I was very upset, but there, there was something powerful that I was doing in that moment. I was reminding myself that I know myself, right? And I, I want you all to know that each and every one of you, regardless of whether or not you have the labels that feel like they fit, you know yourself. And only you get to actually define yourself. And, and I just, I don't want anybody to take that power from you because that, that is your power. And it, it can become so much more powerful when all of you put that together. Because those systems of cis heteropatriarchy, white supremacy need to be taken down. And they're gonna be taken down by you knowing yourself and knowing your power, putting that all together and saying, fuck you to that. Right. So I, I just don't want you to forget that. So once again, Skylar, thank you so, so much. Let's do another round of applause for Skylar. Yeah. <laughs> 
Take the Last Bite is made possible by the volunteer labor of the Midwest Institute for Sexuality and Gender Diversity staff. Our larger work is sustained by the contributions of grassroots donors. If you would like to support the life-saving work of empowering, connecting, and educating Midwest queer and trans communities, please consider setting up a monthly or one-time donation at sgbinstitute.org backslash giving or hitting that green donate button on our website's homepage. Our inbox is open for all of your insight, feedback, questions, boycotts, memes, and other forms of written correspondence. You can contact us at lastbite at sgdinstitute.org. Particular shout out to Justin, Andy, Nick, Danielle, and Michelle for all of your support with editing, promotion, transcripts, and production. Our amazing and queer as fuck cover art was designed by Adrian McCormick. <laughs>